Uh, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy there. We resume our study this morning, uh, find ourselves in this final chapter of this letter to Timothy. We know that Timothy, as we remember, is uh, laboring. His ministry is at Ephesus. He is there overseeing the church uh, while Paul is away, and Paul, of course, is hoping to come to Timothy at some point in the future. Now, where we are, we're winding down in this letter, and Paul is giving him his final his final thoughts in this letter, of course, we understand that in 2 Timothy, which, by the way, we'll go there next. We'll just keep going through. I'm not, I won't do Titus, but we're going to do First and 2 Timothy before we bounce back to the Old Testament. Uh, but these are some of his, his final thoughts in this first letter. And so we, we know that he has kind of been talking about how the church is to function, and, and then he came back to false teaching and idolatry just before this paragraph that we're in now. And now he's coming back around. He's given the negative. All right, this is the things that you should avoid. And now he's telling us, this is what I want you to do, Timothy. This is how you should live your life. And so that's kind of where we are in the chapter. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 in First Timothy chapter 6. So beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charged you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who's his testimony, who, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from repro reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me now. Father, thank you for this word. Do be with us now as we seek to unpack it. Use it to shape our thinking. Use it to transform our lives. Use it to renew our minds and hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When you look at the history of warfare, one of the favorite things that I've enjoyed reading over the year, years in history is just the his, military history in general, but especially with specific warfare. When, you, when it comes to war and battles, you can see two major strategies. Obviously, I'm, I'm being overly simplistic, but two primary strategies when it comes to war. There's the dig in and fight strategy, and then there's the retreat regroup, and then re-engage strategy. And sometimes retreat is full-on retreat. You're just running away from the battle because you know that you can't win. And sometimes the retreat is not a defeat at all. It's simply trying to regroup and reposition yourself for a more strategic attack. So when we think about flight, so you've got the two words here, fight and flight. That's the two words we'll work with, fight and flight. So when you think about flight, flight doesn't always mean defeat. Flight sometimes is necessary for better position. When you look at this from a psychological standpoint, when, you, when we look at conflict and psychology, you have the fight or flight response. And that's oftentimes going to depend on whatever your personality trait is. Some people, they flee from conflict. They don't want to be in conflict, so they run from it. That's the flight. Some people are fighters. They're natural fighters. That's what I am. They're just going to dig right in and, 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 you know, let's go. Come on. Let's do this. And so in psychology, there oftentimes those responses are mutually exclusive. So you either are a fighter 
or you're a flyer. Well, in biblical, in biblical concepts, in biblical uh, theology, fight and flight are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are both pillars of the same thing of, in our battle with sin. We need to do both. That is why in our passage before us this morning, Paul, he tells Timothy, flee and pursue fight the good fight, take hold. So he's telling him to do all these things at once. Yes, there's a certain amount of flight that has to happen, just like there's a certain amount of fight that has to happen. You know, sometimes we, we need to flee to refuge, and other times we need to stand and fight, and sometimes we need to flee so that we can stand and fight. And, and, and of course, the examples abound in Scripture. In God's economy, fight for truth will always will always, fight for truth will always mean that we are in flight from falsehood and worldliness, that we are fleeing these things. There is, if there is no flight, there is no fight. Because if I'm not fleeing the things that present a danger to my salvation and to my witness, then, beloved, what I'm going to do is choose not to fight. I'm going to give myself to those things. And so when we think about this motif… We have to fly to fight, and if we're not fighting, it's because we're not fleeing. And that becomes very clear in your life and in mine. Those examples probably abound in both of our, in all of our lives. So Paul points out the positive and the negative response of the Christian life, that constantly putting something off, which is the negative, i.e. sin or the flesh or the world, And we're constantly putting something on, the righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ, the blood of Christ, our union with Christ, which is the positive. So it's not enough just to flee sin. We must pursue righteousness. And conversely, it's not enough just to say, well, I'm pursuing righteousness. We must also be fleeing sin. Those things work in tandem together for us to have the righteous life that God desires. It's as one Puritan said a long time ago, either or be about the business of killing sin or it will be killing you. He used uh, one of my favorite uh, um, archaic words, mortify. I love that word. I wish we used it more. Be about the business of mortifying your sin or it will be mortifying you. Well, there's no lull in the fight in the Christian life, you know. The world, our flesh, the devil, they are constantly seeking ways to subvert the truth of Christ in our lives, constantly. That's the goal of the enemy. And so when we look at this and we look at what Paul is telling to Timothy here, Timothy is no different from you or me. He needs to be reminded. He needs to be encouraged. He needs to be commanded to embrace uh, or to fight and to flee. The, The world will never ease up, beloved, never. Never. The world is never going to ease up. When you think about Timothy, Timothy was weak. He, we already know he struggled with timidity. He was timid. Paul had to say, don't let your timidity get the best of you. Be bold, be brave, be strong, be courageous. And we also know he had physical ailments in his stomach because Paul had reminded him to drink wine for his, his stomach problems. And so when you read those things about Timothy, don't just pass over those details as if they really don't matter much. What Paul is telling us about Timothy is that he is a weak man, and he needs to find his strength in Christ, and he constantly needs to flee to Christ and fight in the power of the Spirit. Because Timothy was, not given, was given no quarter by the enemy because his stomach hurt and because he was timid. 
We mustn't assume that in places where we are weak, we're going to get a pass by the enemy of our soul. That is where he attacks the most. You better believe if you struggle with cynicism or if you struggle with um, being a cynic, just being a constant doubter, you better believe that that's exactly where Satan's going to come at you. If you struggle with sadness and depression and and getting lost in these things that just brings the deep, deep sadness into your life, you better believe that's exactly where the enemy of our soul is going to come at you. If you struggle with physical pain, you better believe that that is exactly where the enemy of our soul is going to come at you because you know what consistent chronic physical pain does to the mind? It sinks it into a deep, dark well of sadness and depression and hopelessness. And so we better believe that Satan will come at us in those places. So what are we to do? Well, like Timothy, we are called to flee what is false and not true, what is godless, and fight what is false and not true and what is godless. We flee and we fight. We fight by the power of God. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this that we must flee ungodliness and fight for the faith, that we flee ungodliness and fight for the faith. When we think about the Christian life, I've already alluded to this, one of the ways we could describe it is it's life at war. Uh, It's war with yourself. It's war with the spiritual forces of evil. It's war with the world. It's constantly finding yourself between the hammer and the anvil, and the question is always going to be, how will you respond to this? How will you respond in this moment? What will you pursue and what will you flee from? Will you flee from God and pursue things that don't really give you help? Thinking, well, maybe this time it'll work. Will we flee from the things that won't really give us help to God, trusting that I know He brings all things or He works all things together for my good? That's the idea. It's this life at war, and we're we're constantly in the valley of decision of how will I respond to this? What will I do? Where will I go? And that's where we find ourselves, and that's what Paul is addressing here to some degree. The people of God must flee what is false and fight for the truth. Where have we seen a primary example of this in Scripture? If we go all the way back to Genesis, and Joseph, who's in Potiphar's house, he is, he's enslaved, right? He, that's what he is. He's a slave there. But, of course, the Lord blesses him, and he's, a house, he's the head of the house for Potiphar. But what does that put Joseph? Where does that put Joseph? It puts him in close proximity to Potiphar's wife. And remember, Potiphar's wife thought he was handsome and decided, hey, I like this young guy. And so she pursued him. But what we have in Joseph is the biblical answer to what happens when we are confronted by sin. He constantly flees. He con- to make his stand, to make his stand to be sexually pure and to honor God and how he carried himself, he constantly fled the presence of Potiphar's wife so he could fight for righteousness. And you remember why he said, how could I do this thing? And what? Not sin against your husband, not, you know, make Potiphar mad, sin against God because he understood the framework. He understood what the real battle was. The real battle was not in front of him and this lady who was probably attractive and very seductive. The real battle was the battle that was going on behind it, which was the forces of evil trying to seduce Joseph into this thing that would have, con- that would have made him lose his witness, his testimony, and been a blight on the name of God in a pagan culture. 
And so we see the model. Paul tells us we see the model for it. We see how it works. Joseph is primary in that. And so when you get here, right out of the gate, but, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. We're getting this flee fight uh, motif, this narr- uh, paradigm, what I said a while ago, the negative and the positive of the Christian life, the putting off of sin and the putting on of Christ. But look how Paul begins this. But as for you, O man of God, and we're going to stop right there because out of the gate, we understand that Paul is creating a contrast. Paul is contrasting Timothy with someone or something. And so, yes, he's contrasting Timothy with what he's just told us in the previous paragraph about the, the false teachers and those who, who have the love of money and are privy to the roots of all kinds of evils. So we, we, we get immediately the contrast is between Timothy and those who were false. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you must be different. You're not like them. That is not your ethic. That is not your worldview. That is not your philosophy. So you have to stand out different from these men. But what the Greek does, if it wants to place emphasis on something, so Greek sentences are, are not always in the, in the right order. They can throw words here and there and everywhere. But when a Greek writer wants to place emphasis on something, he'll take that word and he'll slap it right on the front of the sentence. The emphasis in this sentence is the pronoun you. He's putting the emphasis on Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, you, you man of God, you righteous one, you flee these things. He's telling Timothy what it is. How does he qualify Timothy's life, man of God? He's creating this contrast. He further creates the contrast by telling him the man of God. That phrase is not unique to Paul here. In fact, that's a phrase that's rooted in the Old Testament. We think of men like Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, these men who were noted, these anointed men often, kings or prophets, who were anointed for a ministry in God's kingdom were often identified as this, as this man of God, because God was seeking to make them distinguished. You're not just anybody. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God, and that means something. That has value has eternal value. And so when we look at this and we think about Timothy in this, there's an application here for all of us. You don't have to be a pastor to see that there's something here that you can sink your teeth into, that the people of God should be visibly set apart from the world, that when people think of you and me, this gets down to identity, which is such a huge issue in our day and time. Our identity is not our gender It's not our job. It's not our relationship status. It's not our wealth status. Our identity at its core is man or woman of God. In fact, we could say, since the Scriptures do a great deal to talk about the the defining aspect of our relationship with God as His love for us, then our identity is beloved. So, and when I'm preaching, when I call you beloved, that's not arbitrary. That's not just a little preacher thing I do. It's because in my preaching, I also want to remind you and me who we are. We are the beloved. We are men and women of God. And our lives should show 
that we love God. So he's telling Timothy, but as for you, you're not like them. You're not like the false teachers. You're a man of God, and your life should reflect that. And so right after that, establishing the context of what we're talking about here, but as for you, a man of God, he gets into four imperative commands that are going to follow this. Imperative, Brad, what's an imperative? It's just a, it's a, it's a grammatical way of giving an express command, and Paul gives four of them right here. Firstly, he says, flee these things. And the way, and the way that that's written is not just one, a one-time run. It's not a one-time flight. It's flee and keep on fleeing. You're constantly, Timothy, you're constantly going to have to flee these things. It's never going to get easier. You're constantly going to have to flee. So be ready, you know, exercise up because your life is going to be defined by flight. You're constantly going to be in flight. That's Paul's point. So he tells him to flee. Now, these things, very ambiguous. What is Paul pointing to? What things? Well, most likely, and what makes the most sense is the things he's just listed in verses 3 through 10. You know, idolatry, worldliness, greed, all those things that would define people of the world, you flee those, Timothy. Those things are, are not you. And so you're not to be given to idolatry and worldliness. But as is typical with Paul, it's not just about fleeing. Then, then there's also a positive thing that he wants Timothy to do. So not only flee these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, that pursue is also an express command, and it also implies pursue and keep pursuing. So, as much as our lives are identified and defined by our flight from things that are worldly and idolatrous, our lives are identified and defined by our pursuit of the things that honor God. And he lists them out right here. I just, I just read them here just a second ago. And so, when we take all those together, what we're saying, what Paul is telling Timothy Flee from worldliness, pursue virtue. Pursue the things that are commiserate with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. These things that are commiserate with the character of God, righteousness, holiness, steadfastness, goodness. All these things that lead to a life that clearly reflects whose we are and who we love. Again, what is the overarching message here? Timothy you and God's people are to be markedly different from the world around you. You shouldn't look like them. We shouldn't look like them. We shouldn't want to look like them. In fact, it's to, they're to be pitied, not impersonated. Then he builds on this. So he's that word there for steadfastness, it is a strong Greek word. I'm, I'm not going to camp out on all these words. Just that one is hupomone. Uh, in the Greek. And, and that doesn't just mean like you, you can patiently endure. That means you endure with gusto. That means you stand firm, that you, you just walk in the, in the pathway of Christ, and you do so with firmness and committedness. Um, but he continues on here. Uh, again, another express command, fight the good fight of the faith. So fight and keep on fighting. You get the sense that Paul is telling you, Timothy, this is a lifelong struggle. In fact, what's interesting about here, um, <clears throat> in the Greek there, that fight, the good fight, literally, if you were to translate it li literally, it would, be, it would be agonize the good agony. That's where we get our word agonize from, or to agony. 
is from this Greek word here. And it, so it's not just a, a, an easy fight, but this is an agonizing fight, a fight that is burdensome. It's cumbersome. It's a trial. It's hard. Right? It's not easy. It's not going to be easy. But what is Paul's command to Timothy? Keep pressing in. It's going to hurt. It'll be painful. You will agonize. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. Because this is not just any fight. This is the fight of the faith, that overarching term that just sums up the Christian life. This is a fight for what is true, good, and beautiful. And it's against what is false. It's against what is worldly. It's against what is satanic. What is false comes to subvert the truth. What is worldly comes to subvert our holiness and Christ-likeness. What is satanic comes to try to convince us that we have no life. And we have to fight against those things. Because I know if you're like me, you believe them sometimes. You believe your flesh, you believe the world, or you believe Satan, or you believe some combination of all three. And we know what happens when we do that. It's a fall. It's a slip. It's painful. That's why the agony of the fight is so much more to be preferred than the agony of letting ourselves go down those paths. Because the agony in the fight is a good agony. It's a good fight. But going down those paths is a bad end. But he gives Timothy the, another, the, the final express command here, take hold of eternal life, he says, to which you were called and about which you made the good confession, the presence of many witnesses. Take hold, it's again, take hold and keep taking hold. What does Paul mean by that? It would be very much akin to Paul's, uh, in Paul's uh, instruction to uh, the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Here, what is this call to take hold and keep taking hold of eternal life? It's a call to persevere. It's a call to persevere, to stand firm, to keep on keeping on, to not give in. But it's a call to cling to the truth. It's a call to cling to life and don't abandon those things, at the first, especially at the first sign of trouble. There will be trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're constantly reminded, yeah, it's going to be painful, but we have to fight because we fight with the power of the Spirit, not our own selves. What I love here is how Paul just kind of breezes right through, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Oh, he's setting us up to make sure we understand, no, Timothy, this is not an eternal life you earned. This is not an eternal life you somehow merited. He uses a, a, a passive voice verb and the idea of called. This was something that was done for and to you by God's gift, not something that you have done on your own. And so having been given this precious, wonderful gift, this pearl of great price, you have to fight. You have to fight in and with and for it because it's beautiful, it's right, it's true. It is the gift of God, not a wage to be earned. But he attaches to this, so about this uh, eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The question is, is where was this confession made? There are several uh, conjectures. Uh, the most popular one probably is that Timothy's baptism, that upon his baptism he would have made a public profession of faith of Christ. 
seems reasonable. Some conjecture that, no, it was at his ordination that when he was ordained into the ministry and the, and the elders laid their hands on him, he made a good confession of Christ. And because we like to create all sorts of scenarios, there's other events that people attach this to. We have no idea. I'll just be frank with you. We don't know what it's attached to, and you know what? It doesn't matter because at some point in Timothy's life, he publicly professed Christ in front of many witnesses. Paul expects him to remember that. Timothy does. He's saying, remember you made this good confession? Yes, Paul, I do remember. Live it. Live it. That's the point. I'm happy. It doesn't matter to me whether it was a baptism or ordination or something else. What matters, That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to say that he made the confession, and so Paul is encouraging him to live it out, to be faithful to that confession. Because when we look at this, if you're in this room and you take the Lord's Supper and you've been baptized, you have made a confession. You've made the same confession that Timothy has. And the question we have to answer is, is are, we living, uh, are we living out that confession? Not perfectly, but are we seeking to fight the good fight every day? Sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed. But are we seeking to fight the good fight? That's the question we have to ask of ourselves. Paul continues here, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who is the testimony, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now, in the Greek text, 13 through 16 is one sentence. The ESV preserves that here. And so what we're getting now is this charge that Paul has given to Timothy. He reaffirms Timothy's charge. And again, I want to make sure we understand that fighting the good fight, being faithful is our charge too. This is not just unique to Timothy. But he does so, again, we've seen this before in this letter, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who, is the te- who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made his good confession. So Paul is calling God the Father and God the Son to bear witness to this charge he's given Timothy. God, he describes as the giver of life, Christ is in the, carna- in, in the incarnation is the good word. Y'all heard about that last week from Gardner, the good word, the benediction or the eulogy, the, the good word enfleshed, encased in flesh. Christ is the supreme benediction in the sense that He is the good word to us, the good word that came and bears witness to all that the Father has said and then bears witness to the Father on behalf of us as we are now righteous. So Paul is calling them to bear witness to what he's telling Timothy. In other words, Timothy, what I'm telling you is right and true, and you are obligated to keep this charge. That's what it means. And Jesus made his, Paul says he made the good confession before Pilate. Now, when Timothy made his good confession, same phrase, by the way, it was a confession of salvation and commitment to Christ. When Jesus makes his good confession before Pilate, he's not having to confess that he's saved. He's making a confession about the truth of all things. Because remember, Pilate asked him, what is truth? Well, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the bread. He is the door. He is what we need him to be for our salvation in life. And so when we think about Jesus, and he makes this good confession before Pilate, knowing that it was going to get him crucified, what we have is an example of unswerving faithfulness in a moment in time, of unswerving faithfulness. Jesus was faithful to the point of death, obedient 
Paul would say in another letter, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But we could say Jesus was faithful to the point of death. And by, by example, he's the example par excellence of what it means to be faithful, to un, be unswerving in the face of what is false. But he tells, so he, I charge you in the presence of God, as he, he, what is he charging Timothy to do? To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that sounds like a tall order to you, it's because it is. That should be a sobering verse. It's very sobering to me this week as I chewed on it. To keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's some things going on here I want to break down for us. Um, keep the commandment. What, which, which one? Paul has given Timothy several commandments throughout this letter. So the question we have to answer is, what does Paul mean? <clears throat> I think we're, we get some indication in the sense that he doesn't use the word commandment, plural. He uses it singular. Keep the commandment. What is the overarching commandment in the pastoral epistles? Faithfulness faithfulness. Be faithful to preach truth. Be faithful to live uh, out God's ethic. Be faithful with your elders and deacons and widows. Be faithful as an employer. Be faith it's faithfulness. That's what it is. So when he's telling Timothy to keep the commandment, he's first and foremost telling Timothy to be faithful to Christ. But then he adds these without, literally without spot or reproach. Without spot or reproach. Now why choose that language specifically? It's important. And we understand this. Without blemish, can you think of something in Old Testament history that needed to be given without blemish? It was the sacrifice. Paul's intentionally using sacrificial language to address Timothy, to be without spot or reproach. In other words, don't compromise in your life to God. Don't make subtle compromises that would have you give God less than the best of who you are or what you can give. That when we come to the Lord, we are coming in covenant with Him, and we are to lay out our best for the Lord. That is supremely convicting to me personally, because I could count to you many ways where I don't choose the best for whatever reason there may be. But this is the charge to Timothy, and I think, of course, it, 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 the ripple effect is to us that we don't compromise, that we seek to give God the best of who we are. Now, listen, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect. But here's the thing is God understands that, so we have the gift of repentance. But if I could say this, though, right, we're not going to do it perfectly, but I think the biggest enemies, two of the biggest enemies of our soul are cynicism and indifference. That when we begin to serve the Lord or our service in the Lord is poisoned by cynicism or indifference, we are running afoul of what Paul tells Timothy here. I have to fight cynicism. I'm a pretty passionate person, so indifference is usually not an issue for me. Cynicism is. And do you, cynicism is that prolonged exposure to things that feel hopeless, and so you begin to sink in despair. And so how that taints our service to God is we begin to serve the Lord, not expecting Him to be the Lord, giving Him ways to fail so that we don't feel as bad about it. And, beloved, we can't serve that way. Paul tells Timothy, without spot, without blemish, without compromise, serve the Lord. And that's instruction for us too. 
Then Paul breaks this down. So to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As Paul breaks this out, just before we get to 15 and 16, back up to that last phrase of verse 14, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the question we must ask is, is did Paul somehow expect Jesus to appear in his lifetime? You bet he did. Just like every Christian who's lived since Jesus has ascended should live their lives expecting him to appear in their lifetime. Because Paul, understand, Paul understood this. He didn't know the day. He didn't know the hour. But he understood that Jesus could come back at any time. So did he expect him? Yeah, sure he did. Just like you should and I should. We all should. We should live our lives expecting Christ to appear, to be ready. I think, I think Gardner mentioned this phrase in his sermon last week. It's the, the old Latin phrase, the quorum Deo, before the face of God, living before the face of God, understanding that the return of Christ is imminent, that He can come back. And he's reminding Timothy, oh, by the way, Timothy, Jesus is coming back, and so you need to live your life ready for that appearing, ready for that, uh, ready for His return. And beloved of God, we do as well. These last two verses, in, in connection with the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul <laughs> closes this little paragraph out with a little doxology, just like Paul is so wont to do. He starts thinking about the return of Jesus and Jesus being the display of the Father, that Jesus shows the traits of the Father, that Jesus makes the Father's sovereignty and supremacy known, and Paul can't help but to stop and praise God for this gift and glory. As you might expect, he who is the blessed the only sovereign. In other words, there is no rival to this sovereign. There is no rival to his sovereignty. He is the only sovereign. There is no other God. There is no God of, of, of Islam. There is no God, of, no God in Hindu. There is no God anywhere else that rivals this God. He is the only sovereign, the only one. That's what Paul's point is. And then he shapes that out, kind of teases that out with by calling God the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's supreme in His lordship. Goes one step further. Who alone has immortality? A, a, a trait that is completely unique to God. You and I, we have eternal life, but we will die. God has never been dead nor will ever die. God the Father. He is completely unique in his immortality. He has a glory that he calls unapproachable light that you can't see. Even Moses, remember, when he was given the opportunity to see God, he had to see God from the cleft of a rock from behind because he could not stand the full glory, so he has not seen the full light of the Father. And Paul is painting this picture of a glorious God who is so pure, so righteous, that the light in which He dwells is unapproachable. We have no concept for pure light. 
Everything we have in our world is a reflection of God, but there's nothing that can adequately reflect the essence of who God is, which is why when you read the book of Revelation, John will say, it was like this, it was like that, it was as this, it was as that, because he can't give you the full picture because it's not comprehensible in the state that we presently live. And so Paul is reminding us that God is perfect, He is righteous, and He's got a beauty that is unstained. So what does that tell us? That God is worthy of praise? Sure, that at least. But more, He's worthy of a life well lived. It's an act of worship, beloved, for us to live for the Lord. It is an act of personal worship. It is a response to the incarnation. It is a response to the logos, the, the word that became flesh as an act of worship. Well, and so what conclusion do we draw? Well, because God is who He is, we can both fight and we can flee. Conventional wisdom in our world would tell us that running is cowardice. In fact, if you're familiar with uh, Kenny Rogers' old song, um, oh, now I'm forgetting the name of it, but I promise my son not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble when you can. Say, it's not all classic rock. But th- th- there's, there's a world philosophy in that song where it's assumed that if I run from a fight, I'm a coward. And that is conventional wisdom in our world. Well, if you're going to be brave, you've got to stand and fight. And yet sometimes all we can do is flee. It's our only choice if it, we're going to be wise, if we're going to be smart. Joseph had to flee the clutches, clutches of Potiphar's wife so he wouldn't sin against God. That wasn't cowardice. That was the wisest, bravest thing he could have done. Because in a moment he said, my testimony to Yahweh is more important than this moment. That's bravery. As Christians, we, we have to learn to fight from a place of strength, and that's often going to mean fleeing what is false to make our stand on what is true. And there are going to be times when we're going to have to walk in the valley of shadow. Psalm 23 promises us that. And we're going to be called to fight in hard places, but we do so with the strength of the Lord and with His good uh, or His faithfulness, His grace. We need the faith to trust in the Lord and stand on truth, and we need the wisdom to know when the Lord is calling us to flee. Whether we fly or whether we fight, we do so to the glory of God. And when we do those things to the glory of God, God is honored and God is pleased, and He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this word this morning, the very simplicity of it this call to fight, this call to flee, this call to pursue, this call to take hold, the charge to keep the command, the overarching charge to be faithful, the call to embrace the fact that we are sometimes supposed to run, and run we must, for by running away from sin, we run to You. And so flight is often a flight into the, to the very place we need to be anyway, which is in Your presence. So, Father, help us to do that with faithfulness, with a genuine spirit. Oh, God, forgive us that we don't often keep the command without spot or approach, that we do let cynicism or any other thing 
indifference or, or other stuff that might cloud our judgment creep in. But Father, give us the faithfulness to stand firm and to take every thought captive, submit them to you, and trust you in the valley of shadow. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.